0: Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran wildland firefighter Rex Hamley. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the fire service, wildland firefighter fitness, the tools that civilians can now access to improve their survival during an incident, how opposition to prescribed burns are causing so many of these fatal fires, how the Prescott 19 tragedy also affected Rex's mental health, the tools he's used to navigate out of that darkness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find, and this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now, so all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Rex Hambley. Enjoy. Well, Rex, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Miguel. Thank you to Brooke Bartlett. Um, you know, these are all voices that have not only introduced me to you initially, but then been pushing to to get you on the show. So thank you for their pressure, even though Miguel now needs to step up and come on himself. But secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield <laughs> podcast today.
1: Thanks, James. Uh, long time, long time listener and um, big fan. And uh, there's been plenty of room for personal growth through your show, for sure. Probably the, I explained it as the uh, premier public safety podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much. I'm sure some of the big ones will disagree, but regardless, I appreciate your <laughs> your perspective. <laughs> um, so very first question then, where on planet Earth are we finding you this evening?
1: Well, I'm in the um, granny shack here at my house, uh, which is a, Tough shed that I finished off on the inside, and it's where family members and guests can stay if they need a place um, and that's in uh, just outside of San Diego, California.
0: So I would love to start at the very beginning of your timeline of your of your life. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings
1: Yeah, I was born in uh, Western Oregon and i've got a sister who's a couple years younger than me and i've got a son right now who's two and both my uh, parents were nurses dad started out as a uh, paramedic and uh, became a uh, rn in the hospital and uh, mom was a nurse uh, her whole career working uh, various specialties but dad did er his whole life
0: did you happen to come across the show on Netflix called A Good Nurse and it was about the, the basically America's worst serial killer that was actually a, a ER nurse? Oh no. So I just interviewed the the real real life nurse that they portrayed in this show who was this guy's best friend and, and fellow nurse and was completely oblivious to what he was doing until but you know, the investigation basically. But uh, it was an amazing conversation because as medics, as nurses and doctors, you know, we are so trusted. You know, families will let us be alone with their loved ones, you know, whether conscious or unconscious and administer meds and therapies just trusting that we're not going to do anything bad. And this is this absolutely awful story of this one, you know, sociopath that found himself in our profession and was, I think, the death co- The death toll, excuse me, was estimated anywhere from 400 to 1,000 patients oh, over I, his career.
1: Well, I will say that the public trust is the greatest honor of service, without question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what is when you speak to your dad, what was – What were some of the takeaways from his medic, um, journey and then what made him go into the nursing side instead? I
1: think he wanted a a better, um, schedule to transition from medic to, um, nurse in the ER, you know, and I'm seeing that myself as a, as a dad being a, a traveling fireman, if you will, having challenges, you know, scheduling at home and still trying to meet the demands of the job. I was lucky, um from an early age i got to go to work with them you know maybe maybe once a month even uh, for a long time for maybe a period of over 10 years probably so i got to see what that environment was like at a um, from an early age and i got to you know help out some of the other nurses changing bed sheets and stuff and i thought it was the coolest thing because there was a lot of strong characters in there that were willing to make order out of chaos. You know, when the doors slide open, you got a guy bleeding or yelling or whatever. And after a couple hours, they had brought this blanket of of order down upon, you know, somebody's worst day. And that left a early impression on me.
0: Now what about the toll of the job? I mean there's a lot of discussion on this show about the the shift work, which is horrendous, and obviously doctors and nurses that do night shifts are absolutely, you know, victim to this as well. But aside from that, there's also the the uh, vicarious trauma. I mean, all the things that we see in in the hospital. You know, a lot of people walk through the doors and then you know are rolled out in a in a black bag. So there's a lot of you know heartbroken families that we're exposed to every shift, whether it's pre hospital or in the hospital setting itself how has your dad and how have your parents excuse me navigated the the mental health side of their profession and their service
1: well you know really before the iraq and afghanistan wars kicked off we didn't really talk about ptsd hardly at all and we've moved light years ahead in the current day but not you know not having that public dialogue when dad was in service um and not having as much language to describe it I didn't really understand it you know later till I went through and still am going through my my own issues now I can see it in other people a lot more, but they'd be the you know the standard things that anyone who has um seen you know hard things day after day for a career you know of twenty or thirty years that that pretty pretty standard stuff
0: so you grew up with um you know parents as nurses. What were you dreaming of becoming when you were in the school age?
1: Well, gosh, um, you know, standard pilot astronaut, uh, firefighter cop, um, the, the line of public service was pretty deep and on both sides of my family tree, there were educators or medical professionals. Um, and I think there's a picture when I'm two or three dressed up as a, as a fireman, but you know, in the eyes of the government, I'm a forestry technician. So I did make it to be a, I did make it to be a forestry technician.
0: Yeah. How dare you assume your employment description? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what about from the physical fitness point of view? You did a you know very, very physically demanding job, especially in the wildland side. What were you playing as far as sports and exercise in the school age?
1: You know, um in grade school I did standard uh soccer baseball, basketball, and had really had a blast with uh, you know, the team environment as a young kid. And then um later in high school I started racing alpine skiing, which was a much more uh solo sport. And you know, you get development from both solo and team sports. You get to develop both sides. I did a little bit of martial arts I enjoyed um and that has did some of that in the college years some mixed martial arts and all those things have benefited me as a fireman today
0: when you say alpine skiing was it, was it the um the uh, nordic skiing or is it downhill that you were doing
1: down downhill racing so downhill uh super G, GS, and slalom so those are the ones you see on the olympics where the fellas and the gals are going downhill as fast as they can
0: now, you see a lot of the wipeouts on, on you know, TV as well. How were you able to navigate that career and not completely destroy yourself?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I didn't have any major musculoskeletal injuries at that age. And I, I stopped around um, probably my junior year in high school. But I did have several concussions. And as we're learning, um, you know, TBIs can be cumulative. So some of the um, the programs that I've have tried to reach out to have asked about your childhood TBI, and I didn't even realize all the times I banged my head doing that.
0: Yeah, well, you got the MMA training, too. I mean, I look back now yep. and think about, you know, what, the shoot box gym in L.A. where you know it was literally fight club and i got my brain rocked and then muay thai in uh, irvine california and same thing so you know no i wasn't a breacher but i look back and go yeah I, <laughs> my brain got rattled more than a, more than a handful of times so you you obviously talked about your sports um you had the uh the, the doctor the astronaut the firefighter walk me through kind of graduation and how you found yourself on the actual fire service road
1: Yeah, that's a great, um, story. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I went off to one semester of college (laughs) where I studied, uh, computer science and I got a 0.25 GPA. (laughs) Yeah. I went to class. Um, you know, my folks were kind of disappointed in me. Um, I wasn't mature enough to study and I didn't know what I wanted to do. So, um, that um, I worked a mechanic that winter, and in that summer, my dad said, "Why don't you apply for the um, forestry department?" And I did. I got hired, and that was my first fire job with the Oregon Department of Forestry in two thousand three.
0: And what was the on ramp? I mean, obviously, you have pack tests in some of these departments. What were the the expectations at the front door for that particular um, organization? You know. Um,
1: they did rookie school for us, so I came in with um, a pretty limited resume. I had some, you know, the job at the at the ski shop, and um, some other odd jobs, but you know, no major, you know, no real jobs, if you will, where where death or dismemberment was a consequence. So we went to uh, rookie school. It was a week, and we camped up in the foothills, and they had a um, they set it up like a pretend fire camp. And we went through all the rookie classes and then towards the, it must've been a Thursday or a Friday. They bust us up in a school bus up into the mountains and, and I'm not making this up. They tossed us out of the bus with a pile of hose, some chainsaws uh, and some fire pumps. And they lit the, um, (laughs) the logging unit on fire and they told us to go put it out. And that was, uh, that was the first introduction and it was a blast.
0: (laughs) Well, you you talked about the ski shop. I kind of skipped over that part. There was a very important mentor when it came to your kind of transition from the school ages to to adulthood. So talk to me about the ski shop and your manager there.
1: Yeah. Yep. The ski shop there in Eugene, Oregon, um, Berg's, shout out to them. Um, It was a pretty busy shop and there was a bunch of, you know, high school and college age guys that worked there seasonally. And then there was chris Stoll, who was the manager and what i you know i remember now he wore forestry boots he had a pair of whites that he wore and he was already a tall man and um he was the first leader that i had that i realized this man is a leader and i want to follow him and that's that's a pretty big thing for you know an adolescent male with a prefrontal cortex that isn't fully formed <laughs> to, <laughs> Um, so we'd be down in the, we called it the dungeon and it was the, it was the lower story of the ski shop when we do the tuning, the skis and snowboards and the rentals. And Chris would come down and kind of survey the area with his hands on his hips. And every once in a while he would bust into the bathroom and clean the bathroom very vigorously in front of us. If we were maybe behind on our, on our duties, not because we were busy, but because we were slacking and it, it showed you know, his seriousness, but it showed that no job was below him. And that's something that I you know I I don't see enough of in the fire service that once you get to a certain rank, there are jobs that are below you. And really important to remember that no job is below you ever.
0: I couldn't agree more. I used to hate it when I go to a department and you know the rookie did cleaning like the whole station while the rest of the crew sat down or the engineer was the only one out cleaning his rig or her rig and the best leaders i've had terry for example from anaheim you know you you had to fight him to get to the sink to do the dishes you know if you were out doing whatever he'd come out and pick up a you know a brush and start brushing the rig with you um and that's how you know camaraderie was was made but the phrase you know one work we all work I love that. You know, If you're the LT that's screwing around on their Facebook while your crew's out there you know, working, then shame on you. You don't need to be doing all the grunt work all the time, but like you said, showing that you're part of a team. Because yes, there's a bugle on your shirt, but ultimately you're a firefighter. You're always going to be a firefighter. So I think that's a that's an, an unique insight for someone before the fire service to see what a leader sh- you know, is like. And you know, this whole leaders eat last you don't have to eat last. You know, sometimes <laughs> the leader needs to eat first, but you eat with your men and women, and you help cook and you help clean, and you show that you're you're a team, not someone who's going to be sh- you know, standing on a on a box with a loud hailer shouting orders at someone.
1: Couldn't have said it better myself. Yep, I, I still um, I got a uh, a battalion chief detail for the summer, and people try and wash wash my truck, and I say no, I can wash my own truck, guys. I appreciate it.
0: Yep, i remember i mean we'd we'd always check the the chief's pack and i'm like if i was a chief i wouldn't want anyone checking my pack that's my pack. yeah you
1: know they're gonna put rocks in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) well i've had it before mistakes have been made you know the high pressure coupling wasn't wasn't attached and some other things on shift change so you know i mean yeah if you want if if the chief is working his ass off trying to figure out staffing and someone washes his vehicle for him or her vehicle awesome but i mean especially with the things like the pack if you're a chief and other people are checking your air pack. I mean, you know, I question that personally. Yes. So talk to me culturally about the fire service when you entered it. What What were the discussions on physical fitness? Were there any discussions at all on the mental health side?
1: That's great. Um, that's something I've seen. I don't want to say come full circle, but it, it feels very linear. linear. Um, when I started... You know, and it may have been different based on the agencies and the position. So when I started, I didn't know that hot shots existed. I think I had maybe heard that smoke jumpers existed or something, but I, di- I didn't really know Adam from Eve, if you will. Um, you know, we had the pack test, which is, for those that don't know, it's a th- three-mile track of level ground, and you have 45 minutes to carry a 45-pound pack. It's It's not really hard, but it makes your shins hurt really bad. (laughs) So that was the only, um, you know, physical barrier to entry. There's absolutely no talk on um, stress or PTSD. And in fact, when I started, one of the senior members of um, not just the crew, but of the fire staff said, you will not get PTSD because you do wildland. And that was 2003. And I believed that for a long time after, you know, seeing burned up people or communities completely leveled. Um, And then, man, maybe around, I think it was when Yarnell happened, there was just a click. And I thought, you know what? I think this is affecting me. And that kind of marked the time when I
0: first really noticed it. Well, it's such a crazy, you know, notion, but again, so many of us thought so many, you know, in such a different way than we do today. And obviously, I've had this seven-year education through all these conversations. But, um, you know, before it was viewed as, well, you've got to be a soldier. Or you were at 9-11 or one of these massive, famous, acute events. Or you were Brendan McDonald who lost, you know, 19 of his friends. Yeah, you you can have PTSD. But the rest of you, you know, you still have no no right to claim that you're struggling. But if you look at the cumulative effect, not only of early life, which is, you know, a big piece is missing, but, you know, like you said, the devastation, the, the inability to save. So the guilt and shame of not getting to a community in time, the sleep deprivation, the physical exhaustion, um, you know, the, the, the impact of the seasonal workers when they are off season and they find themselves struggling then. I mean, there's so many compounding elements to say that because you wear, you know, NOMAX turnouts, in on, on a wildland detail that you don't have the right to have mental health issues now when we look at it is is insanity
1: yeah and since we've you know since then um we've grown as as a culture and being able to talk about it and stuff but uh, back then i you know i had no clue and there was no you know briefing and i don't think they knew any better and it was really no fault of their own it just wasn't something that we talked about
0: at all so what about you specifically what have been some of the career fires that you and your crews have been on
1: oh man um you know there's a laundry list of of um fires, you know the some of the california people the the station fire in 2009 that was my first fire solo um, as an engine boss and that's the equivalent of as a company officer so I got qualified to um, run the fire engine by myself with um, a crew and they cut us loose up to the Angeles National Forest. (laughs) And I think that was on day two or three of the station fire. And that, that was a, that was a career fire for sure. It was phenomenal fire behavior. Um, I was super green as a company officer had a relatively inexperienced crew. Um, you know, that's one for the memory books for sure.
0: Were you in any way, shape, or form close to the Paradise Fire when that happened?
1: Um, the campfire in Paradise. No, I wasn't. Um, and I hate to say it, but I'm lucky that I missed that one. You know, earlier in your career, you're really gung-ho to get those and get after it. But um, that was one I'm glad I missed. It was the genesis, though, of a program um that we developed down here called the Last Chance uh, Survival Simulation Workshop. And I don't know if you got time to go into that, but that was that came out of the campfire. Absolutely. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So um, one of the things that my agency, well, we partner with a group down here uh, called the FireSafe Council of uh, Greater San Diego County, and they're a non-governmental group. And they get grants, they help people with their defensible space, uh, they do education, and they're kind of a unifying force uh, across the, the fire community down here. So I heard about all the fatalities in that fire, and I thought the elephant in the room is that we cannot evacuate these communities fast enough. We know this, um, you know, the politicians know this, and yet the only narrative is evacuation. So I'm, um, you know, I'm a firm believer of civilians evacuating early. That's still the best option, but we know that sometimes you can't evacuate early. Maui's the most recent example where people didn't have, you know, the time lag to get out for whatever reason. Either they were sleeping, they didn't get a notification, they chose to wait, whatever. The end result doesn't matter. You found yourself trapped in a wildfire. So, um... A gal named Brittany and I called uh, a few various fire survivors and we looked at some studies and we put together a course. And then uh, Brittany took a promotion and left the Fire Safe Council. And um, a magnificent woman named Morgan came in and she runs um, the Fire Safe Council now for us. Um, the Last Chance Survival Simulation Workshop goes over um, what actions a civilian can take when faced with the novel situation of being trapped by a wildfire. We've got uh, two uh, Marines, <clears throat> Adrian and Brian. They're both out of seven uh, out of Camp Pendleton. They're uh, retired. They're nurses now. Um, they come and teach the uh, concept of maneuver. And maneuver is um, a tactical concept that's, you know, very, very central to the armed forces and to the fire service as well. We teach those concepts to the civilians. Um, We've got um, a woman named Bella who used to uh, work with one of the SEAL teams down in Coronado. She teaches a segment on open source intelligence, how to use the various apps, um, the weather sites, the infrared satellite from NASA. It's all available to the public with no password, no login. And then um, We've got a a, a panic psychology unit so we can familiarize civilians with what happens when you get scared and how to counteract that. And then we go out into the community and train the communities that they live in. We look at the choke points on the roads. Um, We look at gate and lock breaching. If perhaps there's a soccer field that's locked up for the night and you found yourself needing to make access to a big clear area, we look at, you know, Finding the easiest way into one of those places—we don't actually do it, but we talk about it in theory. And that's a full-day course. We run that um, about three times a year down here in um, the at-risk communities in the San Diego
0: foothills. So, I mean, again, like you said, you've got the evacuation if you've got time, but shelter in place in a in an area large enough that's you know not got any fuel in it is the next best option for the people trapped in a in a town or a city.
1: It is. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's not the best option. The best option would be to leave a day ahead of the fire. But when you find yourself surrounded in fire, we are looking at, you know, maneuvering on the hundred foot scale to the hundred yard scale, maybe the quarter mile scale, even. There's a fantastic story out of the uh, 2017 Sonoma County fires and I forgot the woman's name. Um, she was a 90-plus-year-old woman that lived in a group care home. And her and her uh, caretaker found themselves trapped by fire. They didn't get the chance to evacuate. And they moved around Coffee Park for like 12 hours, maneuvering through the fire. They'd find a little pocket of clear air, move 100 yards down the street, find a pocket of clear air there. Then house would catch on fire. They'd move across the street. And, um, you know, the the concept of how you know a 90 year old woman that's nearly bedridden can survive one of these wildfires is it's phenomenal
0: that's amazing when when uh i watched i think it was called was it fire in paradise i think um the campfire there was one group that was trapped and it was literally just a concrete slab and it wasn't even that big but that i mean it was burning right up to them and i think there was a building on that slab as well but it was that was it that was what saved them had they been anywhere else at that point in that fire they would have perished but by finding that you know fuel-free space that was just just far enough away from the edge of the um the interface that they were able to to survive you know and so yeah i mean this whole pre-planning thing whether it's Um, You know, the hurricanes here in Florida, whether it's, you know, the really well-built schools or whether it's the same kind of thing in the wildland space. Because as we've seen from all the horrific videos, I mean, there's ones of people driving through these flames that make it out. But then you look at the aftermath of the Paradise Fire. It's full of cars with skeletons in the people that didn't make it out.
1: Yeah. um, You know, a lot of this, I think over, you know, the last 30 or 40 years, even in stateside, we've enjoyed, you know comparatively to other parts of the world, relatively risk free living. Um, but as you know, the geopolitical compasses are tipping and we're seeing you know fires very frequently outpace our ability to combat them, I think we need to refocus on the concept of family unit readiness, small unit readiness at the home. Being able to self-sustain for a week or two, being able to practice the concepts of maneuver as a family—we don't have to dress up in military fatigues and go crawling through the bushes, but we do need to be able to practice a little bit of maneuver. And um, that's why I'd, you know I'd really like to drill that home with the civilian side and perhaps our elected officials is kind of a return to f- to family unit readiness.
0: I had Jason Ramos on the the show Smoke Jumper that wrote the book Smoke Jumper, and he has a whole product research company as well and It was a really interesting conversation. I think it was about three years ago now um and he was living in his van so the the internet was pretty bad there but um he was talking about the the shelter, which you know i i didn't get taught that when I was in the East Coast, but when I went out to Anaheim for a few years and they had the wildlife inf- interface on the east side the wildland side was very, very embedded in that department. And we did, you know, shelter drills all the time. They had the fans and all kinds of stuff. But his philosophy was the, in the fire service, we've relied too much on the shelters. Like this is gonna, you know, this will save a life and and less on the preventative side, you know, the prescribed burns, that kind of thing. With this storied career that you've had, what's your perspective of that conversation?
1: Uh, Of the utility of the fire shelter?
0: Yeah, or maybe the over reliance on the fire shelter. Well,
1: I I would ask the question: If you were, you know, we could use the metaphor of law enforcement, or you know, let's say you you forgot your fire boots, and you were still asked to fight a structure fire or a car fire or a wildland fire, and all you had is tennis shoes, would you engage the fire differently? Of course you would. Yeah, you you know you wouldn't be able to walk into a burning home or through. You know, twelve inches of of burning debris, your shoes would melt off. So you would you would look at risk differently with the you know given the gear that you're issued. You know, I, I spent a lot of time fighting fire along the U.S. Mexico border, and um, a couple years ago, I heard a comment from a um, a young fireman. He said he was making fun, essentially of of one of the fire engines on the other side of the border because it was kind of beat up and crummy looking. He said, those guys must not be very good firemen. Look at their piece of shit engine. And I said, hold up, bud. These people over there, they don't have access to the same kind of, you know, the money that we have to buy equipment. But they have a high degree of intelligence combined with a low degree of sophistication that makes an extremely capable fireman right there. And the way that they engage with risk is different than ours because they may not have as fancy of a fire engine. So they're going to look at the opportunities to attack or withdraw from a fire very differently than we do.
0: I just had a conversation with someone the other day who hosts a, a firefighter podcast as well. And I was playing devil's advocate with, in my opinion, the arrogance when it comes to um our helmets and what i mean by that is our helmets are iconic but functionally the large leather american fire helmet which is almost 100 years old now technologically is very very outdated and there are much better you know headgear that you can use that have comms built in and flashlights and won't fall off your head the moment you know something hits them and you can look up at a ladder without clunking it on your bottle um and I, you know, I even got to contrast it myself because I was a California firefighter for a few years and our helmets are a lot smaller and I found it much easier, much lighter. Um, but there is a, a real arrogance with some firefighters that it is more important how I look and what's on my head than if I've got the latest gear. And I personally disagree with that. I think you're fucking wrong. It's just that simple. The tradition is camaraderie, courage, selflessness, service. That, to me, is a tradition of the fire service. Tools are something completely different. And so when I hear conversations yeah. about Belgian firefighters, French firefighters, English firefighters, it's this this arrogance like they don't know what they're doing and their helmet looks stupid. I'm never wearing a helmet like that. I'm a fucking American firefighter. And, and to me, we've missed the fucking point. That's narcissism if you're worried about how you look. We should be looking for the best innovation but then like you said also there are things that those mexican firefighters do that we could learn from in the american fire service there are you know everyone has something that we can take away and the moment that we think that we're so fucking good that we look down on other departments or other you know technology or whatever it is that is a dangerous dangerous place to be in the american fire service
1: yeah and and sayings such as we've always done it that way that is the killer of teams as the killer of high performance teams is that awful saying we've always done it this way. You could not find a quicker way to sink a, to sink a team that's adapting to a new threat or a novel situation by saying that, you know, as far as, um, adaptation and, you know, a mentor of mine I've been fortunate enough to train with a couple of times is, uh, Ed Calderon. I had Ed on the show. Yeah, it is. It is phenomenal. You know, first off, his asymmetric thinking of how to utilize the environment in your favor has been um, massively beneficial. And then his writings on, um, you know, PTSD and, and coping uh, with what he experienced have really helped me. And I and I know for a fact they've talked a couple of guys back off the edge. We're, we're talking about the edge. So tip of the hat to Ed.
0: Yeah. And again, there's a man who, you know, lives in the U.S. now, was, was a member of Mexican law enforcement before. And, you know, the the whole, I think, world that he's created now is fusing those two worlds together, not standing in America and ridiculing Mexico or vice versa.
1: Yeah. And there, um, just to be clear, there's some fantastic firemen on the other side of the fence right there. So if there's any doubt. Come down and join us for a day or two.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite pictures actually in the fire service is that one. um, I believe, I don't know if it's San Diego, but it's an American aerial helping over the fence, putting out a fire on the Mexican side. And to me, that is the fire service. It happens to be a massive wall between them, but ultimately it's two fire departments side by side working together.
1: Yeah, there are um, mutual aid um, and auto aid run cards. I don't think they get activated as often, but... um they do send people across from time and time to time
0: well speaking of international wildfires obviously you know this is uh a pertinent conversation as we record this in august of 2023 talk to me about the maui fires through your lens
1: you know the um couple of friends said hey have you seen what's going on in maui no i haven't and um you know i saw the the wind wind-driven fire which is um you know they're problematic because they spread pretty fast, and uh, you know community that probably wasn't prepared for something like that and in, in the they have fires out there quite frequently, but you know, a fire that levels an entire community is something new. And if you know we go back to the last chance survival course, the ability to maneuver and to know that's what you have to do you know uh, before the flames are coming down on you i don't know if the community had that so without you know without hearsay i don't know what kind of pre- preparedness they'd done i'd seen you know some conspiracy theories online that were honestly pretty demoralizing to see as a fireman about space lasers um <laughs> some other pretty wacky stuff out there
0: i heard it was um, the vaccines that started it yeah, yeah well
1: it's <laughs> Um, but sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes it's not, you know, we had fire conditions that were setting up with wind and low humidities and any ignition is going to turn into a a fire. So when we, the fires in the spring up in Canada, you know, we think of the ignitions are always there. So there's always somebody dragging a chain behind a trailer or someone deciding to weld steel in the tall grass. Um, an abandoned campfire, those things are always there. But when the atmosphere cooperates for us and it gets hot and dry and windy, and the fuels, which are the sticks, the bushes, and the trees, when those get dry, any source of ignition is going to start a fire. So it's really the perfect storm.
0: What was interesting, I was talking to Joshua Jukes, who was a Maori firefighter until very recently, and he's going to come on after this you know this whole thing has kind of passed because we were going to talk prior to these fires even starting um but he has a unique perspective he's a resident of maui he used to be a part of their fire department um and again with these conspiracy theories he, he said well like you said you know there's definitely um a failure in the pre-planning and certainly the response from the, the government side he said a lot of the the, you know, the efficacy that's happened is from the people themselves, you know, banding together as a community, which, you know, again, the Hawaiians are uh, famous for. But what I didn't understand, and I was naive to this, is he said there's so many different ecosystems on Hawaii. And there are, as you said, certain areas where they do get a lot of fires. And I was kind of uh, naive to that particular area. The
1: um, Yeah, the rain the rain shadow where it's dry and they get uh, ripping fires quite frequently, we just don't ever really hear about it. Over here in the states
0: now quite a few Brent Strahan is one for example, quite a few of your your wildland brethren that have been on here. there seems to be again not you know leaning all the way to one side, but that global warming that that temperature change at least the annual temperature changes a lot of these firefighters are saying, look, the fires are just getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse that so the you know the environment is definitely part of this this puzzle and it doesn't have to necessarily be in the heat of the planet. You know, it could be the way that the land is being tended to or not being tended to. What is your perspective of the environmental, um, impact on the American, you know, wildfires that we're seeing at the moment and you know, Canadian as well?
1: That's a great question. And it's a really common question that I get asked a lot. Um, you know, if you looked at the, at the data, whatever it is, you know, one tenth of a degree rise per year or something, I, I wouldn't debate that that the actual measurement of the global average temperature is has slowly crept upward and we know that it's fluctuated over time you know across the millennia um we've always had big fires in the world uh we haven't always had people living in the way of the big fires which we have now so we have population growth um you know the suppressing fires for over 100 years in the united states has led to a lot of disease and overgrowth if you will and we're kind of at a at a point where the intersection of you know economy and you know the natural environment have kind of butted heads here we've expanded out you know from the urban centers into the wildlands and now we have people living in areas that used to burn quite frequently with no ill effect we've got people that complain about smoke from prescribed fires and it's it's challenging you know as a fire planner or a fireman um who implements prescribed fire to to try and win you know the public's eye back to to do some put fire back on the landscape and we see you know we don't want to eat more smoke in the off season when we're making smoke all summer long on these mega fires
0: so just to you know to put that in in contrast how long would the smoke for a prescribed burn last versus the months and months that the Northeast has been under a cloud? Yeah.
1: Um, you know, if, if we could burn on the scale that we wanted to, it would be effective. It's hard to get as many acres as we would need. Um, but, you know, the smoke from a prescribed fire, depending on the size would be a day or, you know, maybe a couple of days, or if it's a really big one, it might be a week. Be much less than a catastrophic wildfire because usually when we do prescribed fires the way that we light the fire on the ground we can control the way it burns better than a wildfire so we can actually control the amount of smoke that we make depending on how we light the ground on fire it sounds kind of abstract but it's actually a beautiful science or an art rather
0: So talk to me about that resistance because I worked um, for the fire department that protected Disney and it was insanity. They would have a wildfire and you can imagine that, you know, a, uh, a small wood next to a theme park that lobs out, you know, millions of dollars worth of fireworks every single night this <laughs> is a foregone conclusion that you're going to have fires <laughs> but they were the muck fires you know they would normally get into the you know to the ground and then under the ground with all the roots and things and it's basically kind of swamp land as well so very dangerous fires i mean guys would disappear into the ground you know, up to their waist um but they wouldn't let them checker or, or back burn or prescribed burn because of smoke for the guests, so they would just have them lobbing on. I mean, millions and millions of gallons, you know, humping this hose literally for no reason. But again, it was because the the pixie dust bullshit. They didn't want smoke in the parks. Versus, like you said, doing some prescribed burns, you know, checkering so clearing out some of the some of the paths so you can easily get to a spot fire. Um, so, no sense whatsoever to again someone who understands that that kind of arena, but. A, in that particular organization, they had structured their business where the fire department was told they had to do what they told them kind of thing versus Anaheim, California, where that happens to be in their city. They don't get to tell them what to do. So talk to me, you know, expand a little bit more on the resistance. How are, how are certain people able to tell the Bureau of Land Management that they can't do the preventative prescribed burns that are needed to stop a tragedy like Paradise from happening,
1: that's a, that's a great question. So you know, especially in California and elsewhere, there's um, you know multiple layers of government, and the Air Quality Board is probably one of the more powerful players. We're lucky that we have a good relationship with them, uh, and we can oftentimes get a, get a waiver so we can continue to burn when the air quality is bad, but. In other places, you know, I used to go back to Minnesota every spring and we would uh, do prescribed burning out there. The people out there in, you know, the rural areas were much more adapted to wildfire and smoke, and they kind of considered it part of the lifestyle. It, had, you know, increased the habitat for some of the migratory birds and it reduced their fire risk. But when we have, you know, heavy urban urban centers, people just aren't thinking about wildfires and you know, the long-term effects of suppressing every fire versus uh, doing prescribed fire. And it's important to remember that prescribed fire is just one tool we have. You know, we can do thinning, we can do mastication, which is a big chopper that comes out and cuts down the bushes that are a problem. So there's many different tools that we have. Prescribed fire is my favorite, but it's oftentimes the most challenging to implement. And plus, James, these guys bust their ass all summer long spring summer fall and when we finally get a break from the from the wildfires the the last thing they want to go do is eat more smoke you know they want to rest and and uh, use their time off and be with their families
0: well speaking of that again ben talked about the shortage of you know wildland firefighters and again as we all know in our professions the less of us there are, the more we're asked to do with less. You know, it's not like they, they bring in a shipload more firefighters because we're short. Um, what does that look like? You have ever-increasing fires, you have more people living in wildland interface, you know, and maybe even dent deep in the wildland, so more potential victims, but you've got less staffing. You know, what, what is that dynamic at the moment in 2023?
1: Well, you know all the public safety agencies are are short. And what was interesting when I started in two thousand and three it was it was very competitive uh, to get in. There was a long list of applicants um had some pretty intense interviews. And now, um we can't fill the vacancies fast enough because people don't want to take them or um, you know, maybe they've realized that the job is really hard. And that and they want to do something else where they can you know make money and have a regular schedule or whatnot uh I'm not i'm not sure what the genesis of that is I think a lot of it's cultural and, and um you know I don't want to use the word glorification but as public service you know the meaning has changed and we've seen various you know social movements uh, vilify you know at least certain sectors of of public service i think people have said man i don't want to do that i'll just go do something else and i'd you know i'd like to champion a return to community service as a position of of valor or or honor in the community i think that would go a long way
0: yeah i agree completely Uh, but i think one thing that i've talked about on here is there's that need for more people to step up and serve. But I think the reality as well is that this, you know, our generation now, so that so the, the young kids at my son's age forward, anyone who's computer literate can now actually research what a job actually looks like. So for example, I don't know the wildland community very well, but in the municipal fire service, you're a young, you know, let's say you got in like 22 and you happen to fall in love early and you've got, you know, a six month old you're like, oh, I think I'm going to be a firefighter. And you look in, it's, oh, they told me it was an amazing schedule. But then you actually have the ability to truly <laughs> research it, you know? And then you go, oh, 56 hours a week. That, that's that's more than a civilian. Okay, well, and then you get a little bit more. Oh, and they're understaffed, so you can get told you can't go home the next day. So now that's a 48-hour shift. And then obviously, you know, you, you look at the wildland side and you're like, okay, it's actually deployments for months and months and months. And I think this is the issue. It's not There's this part of we need more people that serve. And sadly, a lot of people that are famous or infamous in politics and everything else, I don't see kindness, compassion, service at the forefront of most of these conversations on our screens. So that's one of the problems. But the other thing is, I think a lot of these employers have got away with underpay overwork for a long, long, long time. And now this next generation is wise enough to go before I even commit I've able to research what this actually looks like and I really want to serve, but I think I'm going to go serve in this capacity over here because I want to come home in the morning and I don't want to be exhausted when I, you know, pick up my son from from my wife after she's been up all night trying to stop him from being colicky. So I think that's another part of it is that now I think the curtain's been pulled back on on what it actually costs emotionally, you know, everything to be a first responder. And I think now the real call for action is for the people that are asking us to leave our families and go do the things that we do, that the employer takes care of them and gives them the support, the rest and recovery so that we can be great at our job, but also, you know, be good parents and and spouses when we get home. And I would argue we deserve the right to have a long, healthy retirement as well. I would
1: love to see... um the work-life balance And I was, um, you know, it it wasn't luck or anything, but the way it worked out, I didn't have a kid. You know, a lot of guys have, have kids or they're, you know, they and their partners have kids, (laughs) but um, earlier in their career, and they claw their way up. um, I didn't have a child till two years ago. And I'm, you know, that was like my, uh, I don't know, 19th year in fire or whatever. And that transition from, being on a team, you know, that is stoic and, you know, it's a, it's an organization that is designed to face certain danger on a regular basis. So going from that to fatherhood this late in my career, my life was really hard, had a really rough go, uh, making that transition to being a, you know, a nurturing, caring father Especially to an infant, which you don't get much back from an infant. <laughs> <You> know, maybe <laughs> until they're gone. It's a they or, or whatever, but <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm used to leading leading guys around that can, you know, they can wipe their own butts, they can heat their own meals, cut their own trees down, and then I've got this, um, you know, a, a perfect child, but it didn't feel perfect to me.
0: Because it doesn't know um, how to start a chainsaw.
1: Right, yeah, it doesn't <laughs> know how to start a chainsaw or pump or. Um, provide, you know, terminal and control and interaction to the DC-10 super tanker, but (laughs) um, actually, you know, Z came over after, um, you know, maybe a month after my kid was born, and I was having a really rough time, James, a really bad time, and uh, he looked at me, and he said, you know, this child is a threat to everything that you'd been prior to this, the identity of you know, a strong stoic fireman. And now you have to completely switch modes to do a job you've never really done before. You know, i had done mentoring in the fire service, but never bothering a child. And uh, that, that stuck with me. So big tip of the hat to Z for saying that and that, you know, him and one other guy, um, a guy named Thomas said, I really hated it early. And then it got awesome later. And around his, his first birthday, it did get really awesome. But up to that, you know, if there's any other dads out there, it sucked. You're not the only one.
0: I I absolutely loved it, but I will be completely transparent. When we brought my son back from the hospital, I think I had like a few days. Um, And I, you know, up to that point, I'd been working more to try and bank some time off for when I have my child, which I'm sure a lot of people do. So I was more tired than normal but he got colicky so it's probably probably a couple weeks into having him but he got colicky i think i was back in shift actually and i just remember shouting at him this two week old little bundle of joy that was crying because he was in pain because his stomach hurt because he had colic and i was just like shut up shut up shut you know fucking shut up not aggressive to him but just frustrated and burnt out and this is i think you know again what i said about the rest and recovery you're asking people to do the things that we do and, and the work week that we're, we're given with a complete disregard of whether we need to function as human beings when we walk out the station or, you know, wherever, wherever we travel to go back home again. But then you add in a child who on the days that you at least managed to be able to get a little bit of sleep now keeps you awake. You know, it is it, it, it just compounds the problem. And then you're full of guilt and shame Because you're angry at this two week old child that has the audacity to stop you from sleeping. So it is part of the conversation because you talk about stress. There's no greater stress than a 24, 48 hour shift without sleep coming home to a tired partner who hands you a baby, you know, and now you've got to be a a parent and try and be a good parent for the next day or two, whatever you get to, to, to rest until you're back at it again.
1: You couldn't have said it better, James. I yelled one time at my son when he was a month or two old. And uh, the guilt I felt from that, you know, i just come back from a fire, did the the hot handoff with the mom. If you, you know, a hot pass down <laughs> and um, the guilt I felt was terrible. And um, I wish that, you know, it's an opportunity to lead with, with the new dads in the services to share those experiences with them and be like, you know, that's normal to feel terrible and to have these ex- experiences with them. Cause no one shared that with me. I didn't know, you know, I didn't ask and um, no one shared it with me. So I didn't know what to expect, but on, on the flip side, I see guys in my department and our cooperators that are, you know, they're have a pregnant partner or they just had a baby come and I tell them, you know, what my experience was, that it was hard, um, that it got better. And, A lot of guys have great experiences from the get go. Some don't, but I want the ones that don't know that that's normal and it's okay. And it's okay to ask your your peers, um, you know, how they're doing about it. And that's the path for moving forward with all these things, really, is to get the dialogue going, kind of like you do on your show, James.
0: Well, speaking of that, you talked about becoming aware of your own struggles after the yarnell fire so kind of walk me through that that was 2013 have i got that right yep yeah it was so walk me through the last 10 years
1: well gosh so i was standing in the driveway uh, of the house that uh, i lived in with my partner at the time who is a magnificent woman um caring kind beautiful strong uh former hotshot, and um she came downstairs. And she said, "I think something really bad happened in Arizona," um, and you know the news trickled in after that. Um, and it was just, you know, there had been tragedy fires had been part of prior to that, but that was the first one that really set in, you know. And then looking back on it, um, you know, through the lens of you know, like the All Secure Foundation has phenomenal work. I think you've had Tom and Jen on, if yes, I'm not mistaken. But I have, yeah. Phenomenal work on that. Relationships at home and the effect of war fighting or, or firefighting, um, what that has on a home life. But um I end up losing that relationship and um two, you know, I lost two domestic relationships that were extremely meaningful and um loving and caring. I think due, you know, to a lot of the stress at work, um, the way it comes out and, you know, being an overtime horror, if you will, I know that's one of your, your hot buttons, James is, is (laughs) the uh, chronic overtime guy who takes, takes all the deployments so that he can avoid being at home and not have to, not have to put energy into the home life. You know, those things catch up with you waking up in the middle of the night, um, with your fire camp being burned over and, um, Fighting fire with the guys in wearing underwear and flip-flops you know um that's happened more than a handful of times out there and not being able to relax is you know now we're drifting into the dr Brooke bartlett territory here but we know we know about it now you know on the firefighter level we know these things aren't mystical creatures that come out of the dsm four or five or whatever that these are these are real things of a career of you know five, 10, 15, 20 years in fire, you're going to get them. I don't, you know, I don't walk around with a first aid pack when I take my kid to the skate park, but I've got a bitch and trauma kit and shrunk my car, you know, for when a kid cracks his forehead open on the, on the rail, but you can't, you can't really come down from, you know, once you've experienced these things so many times that regular life seems boring and um i know that there's a lot of guys nodding their heads out there so you look for a thrill that's bigger or more dangerous or whatever um for me the cure has been going to therapy regularly and then getting to see uh, my kid discover the world is like a second chance almost to rediscover how simple a roly-poly could be crawling across the ground, or um, just going on the swings, or taking the um, bike down to the skate park and seeing the pride in a child's face when they master a new task in the skate park, or something like that. Is
0: that's the antidote for me, at least. It's amazing how, again, like you said, when when we're so hypervigilant you know we've got to such a high level of of stress on a daily basis and i'm just talking to a green beret friend about about this um you know not only is your adrenaline in my opinion recalibrated and we were talking about adrenal fatigue when i went on the, the round world trip with 7x we did a skydive over the pyramids out of a russian helicopter and i didn't feel anything and it's not that I'm some courageous badass I just think that part yeah. is broken you know it just doesn't work anymore um but yeah. also getting back to the um the gratitude and the realization of the miracles that are around us and a child gets that a child is completely blown away by a butterfly. You know, we may swat one, not even realize we've killed one until we thought it was a bug or something. You know, so I think that's that's a beautiful thing is is living in a positive way vicariously through your children and allowing you them to pull you back to the wonder that is the world and not the problems that we have to face every single shift.
1: Yeah, it's been a lifesaver for me. It has. I didn't, uh, you know, I I didn't have a um, an intent to bring a child into this world and I did. Um and to be able to to uh re- you know relive those experiences through him is is phenomenal. And you know when you said you jumped out of a helicopter, you didn't essentially get a rush. <laughs> you know, last summer there was some catastrophic wildfire somewhere and I was trying to open um I had someone working in a, a trainee position with me. And they were riding in the passenger seat of my work truck and I was fumbling through, uh, one of those Trader Joe's packets of olives, um, trying to open it, you know, when there was like flames impacting the vehicle and, um, <laughs> I bobbled a couple olives and I was, I, I, I knew what was going on on the fire ground, was acutely aware, but I was more interested in getting, you know, recovering my olive. And, uh, you know, that's kind of an indicator when you jump out of a helicopter or, you know, there's fire burning all around you and you're more interested in the olive that fell between the seats. That you need to recalibrate.
0: Absolutely. I mean, olives are delicious, but, you know, not in a near death experience. They are. <laughs> so you mentioned Dr. Brooke Bartlett. She was on the show twice now. Amazing conversations. And to me, one of the best people in the mental health space when it comes to understanding our profession. Talk to the fellow wildland firefighter about some of the compounding elements in your profession that do lead to post-traumatic stress and then what are some of the tools available to your community
1: yeah that's a great um that's a great question so you know most people there's a survey at brooke told us about um, most people see you know two or three really traumatic events in their lifetime and you know, a firefighter, cop, paramedic is going to see something like 20 or, or some obscene balance and um, you know, losing those relationships, um, you know, due to me being a shithead. But also I'm going to put some of that on work um, on the PTSD, uh, you know, combining traumatic experiences in the areas that you live and serve. You know not to downplay any sort of experience overseas that people have but you know we go through these things in our community where we live and where we work we you don't get to really come home from that um i think combined with toxic smoke exposure you know tbis poor sleep poor nutrition and poor fitness um, those really compound and magnify the effects of trauma that you're going through in the workplace so um when the Biden administration passed the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, this is for the Fed guys, they um set aside some money to help our mental health uh program uh grow. And um I met Brooke through a mutual contact named uh, Brian Moore. He works at the Ames uh Brain and TBI Research Center, which is affiliated with uh, Kennesaw State University, I believe. He'd be also be a good guest for you, James, Brian Moore. And he put me in touch with Brooke and um, said, so, hey, Brooke, you know, looking to build a program out here. So um, my agency brought Brooke on and um, she's been doing some mental health programming for us, going out to fire stations and talking to guys about the different kinds of therapy, uh, the different credentials that therapists can have, which is really important. And just to to get the dialogues, you know, because people usually don't sit around the chow hall and talk about, hey, James, how's your mental health today? Although we should, because if you had, uh, you know, a Pulaski fell on your knee, everyone would be like, James, how's your knee, brother? That uh, Pulaski really hit you hard. And if you, you know, you see a burned up kid or, or something awful like that, um, maybe your partner should be asking you, hey, man, how how are you feeling about that? You know, obviously terrible, maybe not terrible. And either way is OK to feel. But the fact that you can start to get that dialogue, same as if you if you had a beam, you know, structure collapse and you got tagged in the shoulder the next day or that night or weeks ahead of, you know, weeks down the road or even a month or years later, your friends might say, James, how's your shoulder, man? I remember when that beam collapsed and hit you. And then you'd say, oh man, you know, I got a little bit of ligament damage, but I've, you know, I've gone to some physical therapy and I've healed from it. And the same would be for if you had something, you know, that's giving you nightmares or um, that you're jammed up about would be the same dialogue at the firehouse or even with your, your domestic partner or a friend or whatever, to be able to say, James, I know you had a rough call last night. That'd be rough for anybody. How are you feeling? And you could say, I feel fine. That that didn't actually bother me. It was something else that you ate the last Snickers bar, you know, (laughs) but to be able to, to, to be able to normalize that conversation, um, having culturally competent, People like Brooke, who you know she did that that long internship with her fire department down there, I think it was Houston to understand the culture and to you know to be able to integrate as an inside outsider, if you will. you know she's not a firefighter, but she knows a lot about us. you know the same with G too you know um you know he's got the operational background as a reconnaissance, team and um now he's a human performance guru. Who knows about your joints, how the molecules work, sleep hygiene, so we've got two folks here that are very passionate about protecting public servants, and they've both got operational and and uh, classic background to back that up and wouldn't we be using these people more?
0: absolutely well, I know for people listening obviously we're we're struggling a little bit with the bandwidth um It's been amazing a conversation, but I think it's probably best if we Close it out, um, because uh it was great until now and now it's kinda of fading out a little bit. So I wanna thank you so much for coming on. Again, your perspective, like so many people on here, is so unique. And with your lived experience in the wildland fireside and some of the things that you've got as far as hopefully solutions for the future, it's been a, a fascinating conversation. So I wanna thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: James, it was an honor. And um got to tag Z so Z you're up buddy